0: Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel.
1: Hey everyone, how's it going? I'm Benji Davis. Welcome to this episode. Kalev, Mike, how are you guys doing?
2: Doing okay, how are you okay, Benji? Ben. Yeah? You excited about hosting?
1: Yeah, this is something to be excited about. big responsibility. I mean... I have never really hosted a podcast before. I usually just kind of like to chime in, say my piece. And (laughs) And then chime out. Yeah. You you can chime here. So I'll chime. So what we're going to chime about today is the North. The North. We the North. No. Hezbollah in in Lebanon. What is Israel to do about Hezbollah in Lebanon in this current moment? Should Israel invade during this current war? Should Israel invade as soon as we take care of Hamas? Or... You know, we don't have to decide now and uh, wait and see or or who really knows. So we have uh, two sides to this debate on what is Israel to do with Hezbollah in this current uh, moment that we're in. And Mike is going to explain what he thinks, why we need to take care of this now or in the near future. And, And Kalev thinks maybe we should have a different perspective. So I'll let Kalev start out with where he's holding on terms of what Israel should be doing with Hezbollah right now.
2: Great. Thank you Benji. So, I'll just say that the structure of these podcasts is that each of us take a position even if we don't necessarily hold it ourselves, but I think there's some debates where it's very clear who's going to argue what. Just an insight into the, you know, stuff behind the behind the behind the podcast. And then there's others where actually I think we could argue either side. And this is probably one where we could argue either side, but I'm going to be arguing something very specific and Mike's going to be arguing something else. Just a little bit of background, uh, kind of to take us back to a pre-October the 7th world. Israel had a a security strip, a so-called security strip in Lebanon for almost 20 years. It withdrew unilaterally in in May 2000. The Lebanese government was supposed to take over that area, but it, it never really did. And instead. Uh, Hezbollah, which is a Shia fundamentalist organisation that does not recognise Israel's right to exist, it's connected to Iran, took over that area. Things were relatively quiet for six years. In the summer of 2006, a war broke out, subsequently called the Second Lebanon War, after which a UN Resolution 1701 was voted on and implemented where Hezbollah was supposed to be pushed away from southern Lebanon, north of the Litani River, which is a river, to be honest, uh, maybe 15, 20 kilometers from the border. And UNIFIL, which is a, a UN organization, was supposed to police that area. That also never happened. What?
0: A UN organization didn't succeed? Incredible, I know, Mike, that,
2: <laughs> you know, this is all about bringing, uh, mm. you know, innovative things that people really? aren't aware that people would never have, have imagined yeah. before. Hezbollah have got a kind of elite a unit called the Radwan unit numbering around 2,500 people who were very, very much on the border. I've got a a former colleague who is in Milouim in the north, and he said, you know, kind of 50, 100 meters from the Israeli border, there's a Lebanese village uh, that everyone knows is basically just a kind of a Hezbollah lookout area. But if we were to take ourselves back to October the 1st, the perception in Israel would have been Hezbollah is obviously a, a big problem. They are a big threat. They also have 150,000 missiles, a few hundred of which are probably precision guided, which means you, you kind of you, you put in the, the GPS. And unless that rocket gets hit out of the sky, it lands within five meters of its location. Very, very serious kind of stuff. But the conception, if I can call it that, was that we can basically deter Hezbollah. And making a move to get rid of Hezbollah, certainly a preemptive strike, would be too dangerous and too costly for the Israeli home front. And I think our question really is has that changed? Now, I think part of it has changed in the sense that we can't really expect thousands of Israeli citizens who live in communities near the border to legitimately go back to their homes and to feel safe if Hezbollah is. As it is now. But I'm going to argue that I do not think Israel should preemptively strike Hezbollah. By the way, it seems from reporters, and there's no reason to doubt that this is accurate, that around the fourth day of the war, so around October 10th, 11th, 12th, this exact debate happens in the IDF headquarters. And Defense Minister Gallant and other IDF chiefs are quite keen on Mike's position, let's preemptively hit. And the Americans are very reticent of that happening. I don't know where exactly Netanyahu was. He's quite cautious, so he was probably with the Americans. And the Americans were basically saying, listen, we've brought this, kind of our, our naval strength to the region. We've warned Hezbollah, don't. And that's good enough for now. So my argument is basically that I don't think we can go back to how things were. I don't think we can reasonably expect Thousands, if not tens of thousands of of northerners of no, uh, people who live in northern Israel to go back to their homes, but what I do think we we can realistically try to do is to focus on deterrence, keep a lot of the IDF in the north, and push the Americans and the French and I know the international community is is kind of quite amorphous and maybe a bit laughable, but I think we can quite legitimately say, listen, seventeen hundred one. Needs to be implemented. And you have X amount of time to make sure this gets implemented. And if you don't, we will do
0: it. But I think Hezbollah north of the Litani.
2: Hezbollah right? needs to be moved north of the Litani. The Lebanese government needs to go south and be in that area. And if you don't do that, then we, at a time of our choosing, will deal with Hezbollah. I just don't think that Israel has the either the military capacity or even the psychological capacity to even after the day after the war in Gaza whatever that means I just don't think we have the capacity to deal with the military threat that is that is which is far far higher 10 or 20 times more significant than, than Hamas I don't want to say we're not capable of it but I'm not sure we've got the capacity of dealing with it effectively and so we might as well don't want to say give peace a chance we were just discussing the beatles before i'm not in a give peace a chance but give diplomacy with military threats a chance before we embark on what would be a very very significant war both for the idf and also for millions of israeli citizens who could quite legitimately have to spend days on end in shelters so that's where it's i think this is this is a really complicated question and and it's really unclear what the best choice of action should be. But I think that, bearing in mind all of the circumstances, Israel will be best served by trying to get the international community to push Hezbollah rather than us doing it ourselves.
0: Literally and figuratively push them.
2: Well, probably north. not liter- Probably not literally push them. but we'll push certainly them fig- north of the Latani. Yeah, but not in a literal way. Okay. Certainly figuratively. Move them. Cause them to be moved.
0: Okay. On that note, Michael. Please. Well, I, I I mostly agree. So now I'm going to attack you, No, I'm not going to attack you. You're going to push him. Uh, I'm going to push. I mean, why? But you, only you, only but figuratively. You better not literally. Not because literally. there's
2: some very nice, you know, kind of technical stuff. Yeah, that we'll well, that's get. an interesting
0: question. Then we'll bill us if pushing couldn't literally be the term. But anyway, but that's a different conversation. I think most of your analysis is is correct in terms of the tension and exhaustion the psychological impact this war is having and that what that morale does for an israeli in a democracy the public has to support a war and we are weary and we are i don't know if, i don't know if we're at the halfway point in the war with gaza i don't know i'm not sure i think hard days are to come and so to argue i'm in the position of arguing that when the whatever Not when we leave Gaza, because we're going to be in Gaza for some time, but when we have a sort of stable condition in Gaza, I'm in the position of arguing we should then preempt and invade the North. And I agree with you that that's a a heavy push on a war-weary population, both on the military itself, but also on the home front of saying, you know, your husbands, your sons, your brothers are going to be, and some of your daughters and wives and and moms are going to be out there on the front lines. An extended war is not something Israel is particularly good at. And I and I also think that you framed well by pointing out that we can't go back to pre-October 7 thinking. We can't send families home to their homes in the north and say, oh, don't worry, Hezbollah can launch rockets, but they're not going to come over the border and start slaughtering and torturing your families to death because nobody believes that anymore. Or, oh, sorry to interrupt, when they say
2: they're going to, yeah. it's just for show and we don't really need to believe. No,
0: no, we now, we now take them... Literally and seriously, and I think your your analysis of the capabilities, I think was correct. I think your analysis of the intentions, is correct. But at the end, I think your strategic conclusion, I'm going to argue, is incorrect, because first of all, when you mention that they are Shia militia and they're more they're a small army, uh, well trained, well supplied, as you described, uh, they are completely under the command of Iran, and so if we're analyzing intentions, well. Here's an interesting question. When their leader, Hanan Nasrallah, spoke and was very threatening and defended Hamas and said, Oh, we have your back, didn't say it explicitly, but he implied, But we're not jumping both feet into this war. And certainly there's been exchange of gunfire just about daily to show their commitment to the great cause of destroying Israel. But they haven't launched a full scale war. Why? Why? Why is Iran keeping them, so to speak, on the leash why aren't they letting the tether go and just letting them well i don't know i don't I don't know that anybody but Iran and Hezbollah knows. I would imagine Iran is holding them. This is not the time in other words, intuitively, and I think when you're saying when there was an early Israeli debate, do we preempt there was this sense of uh oh, now that we're engaged in the South and we're responding especially in the first few days when it was chaos, isn't Hezbollah going to take advantage of this and come pouring over the hills of the north and take over Metula and do the same thing there? They didn't, meaning they're not planning on an imminent invasion, it would seem. Why? Is it because Iran's waiting for its nuclear capabilities to engage so that Hezbollah can assault us under Iran's nuclear umbrella, thereby changing the whole strategy of the war, Is it not nuclear-based? Is it that Iran simply wants to build them up, fortify them, make the invasion more successful? Whatever reason, they're not invading now. It's not because they want to give peace a chance. It's because they're waiting for the day that they could strike more successfully. That's, I think, all they're waiting for. The idea that we can deter them, I think, I don't think it's a credible assumption, but I think it's a strategically impossible assumption assumption to make. In any strategy, we have to assume that they are planning to build their capabilities to the point that they will have a more successful invasion of the North than they could have today. That's the only reason they're not invading today. And so, I actually think that waiting for that is a terrible strategy. And I think that now, and it's true we're exhausted and we're weary, but the troops are, we're in, the, we're in a war, the troops are gathered both at the South and at the North. And the country is in a war footing and would like it to end as quickly as possible. But we'll definitely understand the need to eliminate a much more powerful threat at the North before it gets worse. Why would we postpone with the possibility that they could invade before we preempt? When we will preempt now on what will almost certainly be better conditions than at any time in the future going forward. Unless the Iranian regime collapses, or if we don't intervene, it's very hard to imagine Hezbollah is not going to attack. There's almost nothing outside. I don't think any diplomatic solution that you have is temporary. So the question is, we're going to fight a war with Hezbollah now or later. And I think it makes sense to do it now. While the people are ready, while the troops are gathered, while the world understands to whatever degree, in the free world, I think they do understand. And I'll add just one more point as I wrap up. America desperately does not want Iran to become the superpower of the Middle East. Saudi Arabia desperately does not want Iran to become the superpower of the Middle East. An unpushed back Iran at this stage leaves Iran as a major player in the Middle East, as a link to China. Saudi Arabia already sent out in the past year diplomatic reaching out to their arch enemy, Iran. Maybe we don't have to be such big enemies because they're worried. That the American superpower is not going to have the influence in the region. America needs Iran pushed back. And so if there's a way to engage the Americans at all in this military mission, it's possible. I don't know how. But that would take a lot of the pressure of this war off of Israel. But it's in the wet america and Europe can't leave Iran standing after this exchange on— its current level of threat in the region, and their threat is only going to increase as they continue working towards nuclear weapon power. So now's the time. We've got our allies behind us. We've got the people ready. Now's the time.
1: So I feel like the elephant in the room is a red, white, and a blue one, which both of you kind of hinted at and made it seem like Israel is actually the decider on when it's going to do whatever it wants to do up north. You're talking about the French, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oui, oui. No, and uh, I remember, no, 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 I still remember my high school and the second Iraq war, they served French fries. And then when France was against it, they cut off the French and wrote freedom fries. No, I bleed red, white, and blue American, baby. But the, the aircraft, the American aircraft carriers uh, in the Mediterranean right now, What if that is a permanent fixture as an American power is returning to the Middle East? As in, what's happening between Israel and Hamas is an issue between Israel and Hamas. But it seems clear as whatever will be between Israel and Hezbollah is not necessarily a war between Israel and Hezbollah. It's when Iran and America decide they're going to go at it. So I'm, I'm curious, based on you guys both expressed positions, but you kind of didn't really answer that, as, as in, is that what's going to change the dynamic one way or another, or will there be independent actions from either side, Israel and Hezbollah? Mike, you can go first, because Kalev went first last time.
0: Well, I, you can't try to manipulate an ally. That's That's bad. But if, let's say, as a thought experiment, if Iran showed its hand, the American administration has warned the Iranians, don't enter this fray. Let's say they did with both feet. Don't. Yeah. I'm going to say it again. No more larky. If Iran showed its hand, America would engage. And and that would change the equation dramatically. In other words, at that point Israel's in, right? I don't know that that's going to happen. It's hard for me to make this argument because I just want the war to end and I want my sons-in-law home and I want all this over. But Of course. But we're just talking, you know, pragmatically without all the emotion. I think that would be ideal. If if the Americans are 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 in this battle, America's the most powerful military that's ever existed on planet Earth. And I think with far fewer casualties on the Allied side, Israeli and American, if Israel and America do it together. That would be, I think, terrific. On the idea that while the American carrier groups are are in the region and that that's part of our umbrella of protection, I have no faith that they're gonna remain in the region. America is not a stable power. Mm. American politics are entirely unstable. I do not expect long-term America to keep its military force other than their own interest to keep Iran in check. But but I have no idea, you know, part of it depends on who the next president of the United States is and and how they perceive global confrontations with dictatorial powers. So I I have no idea what's going to happen next. And I don't think Israel can rely on that. And that that only buttresses my argument that the sooner the better.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: A couple of things. I think ultimately the reason why on the third, fourth day of the war, a preemptive strike against Hezbollah was, was not decided on was because of the Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think, listen, I think Biden has been, personally, I think Biden has been absolutely amazing and also just a huge mensch as well. But the
0: thing about a kind of a bear hug... Do you know he called the families of the hostages that got released to touch base with them personally? I can't... It's a He effect. cried with them it's on a the phone. Level. All, a all the level. American ones? Uh, I, think, I think mostly the American ones. Wow, I didn't hear that.
2: Anyway, I think the thing about a bear hug is that it also limits you. And so I think America gave Israel all all of this help. But with it came other things. We're we're bringing bringing naval ships into the region and we are asking you not, not to preempt. Now, that shouldn't necessarily affect our debate But I think it is definitely a component. Just something to to relate back to what you said, Mike. I had a very interesting conversation this week with a very smart academic called Jonathan Reinhold, who's kind of an an expert on American politics. And what he was arguing was, firstly, Biden is kind of the last of the Mohicans, both amongst the Democrats and amongst the Republicans. Mm -hmm. It's someone who grew up with kind of this Cold War perspective that there are geopolitical, Enemies of America, primarily Russia and China, and to a certain extent Iran. And we have say three options, really only two options, because isolationism is not a serious option for a serious president who wants America to play a role in the world. And so there's two options. One is the forever wars of boots on the ground, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. And if you don't want that, what you need to do is you need to support your allies. And that is why Biden has been so keen on supporting Ukraine, because it's it's either Ukraine fight Russia, or we the Americans fight, and, and we don't want to. So let them do it and we'll help them. And the Israel battle against radical Islam is also seen through that prism of Israel is our ally, and we need to help them, to, to the, we need to back them to the hilt, because the alternative is
0: The Forever Wars, and they fight them there, or we fight them here,
2: right? Or we, the Americans, yeah, we fight them then. We, we, the Americans, don't want to fight them, so we're going to help the Israelis to do it. And I think that is, I think that's a very clear-eyed strategic thing. But as you said, Mike, after Biden, certainly if it's the Trump presidency, or even if it is a more progressive and inverted commas democratic presidency, that that does not exist. Now that doesn't necessarily play into our. Debate over what to do. I, I
0: also think it's a little overly pessimistic.
2: Maybe I mean that that generation. I, I can
0: give you a list of. Uh, oh, they're they're not you know greatest generation or baby boomer politicians who who very much, you know. I think Nikki Haley holds that worldview. I think you have uh, what's his name Torres in New York. You have people who get these things that that they're not they're not from Biden's world experience, but they also get the, that, they share Biden's view on both, there are people in both parties who share by that that paradigm that you're describing. Right, although not
2: necessarily strong chances of... Correct. The, but yeah, listen, he's not he's not right. the only one, right. but I think just, just one other thing, and it doesn't necessarily relate to the thing that Benji asked, I think one reason for Iran to keep Hezbollah on the leash is because Iran is basically holding Hezbollah for... D-Day. Mm-hmm. And what D-Day is, is to try and deter Israel from carrying out a strike against Iranian nuclear facilities. Uh, because if Israel were to do that, then Hezbollah w- w- would attack Israel. Um, again, that all that means is that ultimately this is a threat that needs to be dealt with. Whether it should be dealt with militarily now or diplomatically with a military threat is still open to debate. But I think we both agree that, again, what was this idea that civilians can live a couple of hundred meters mm-hmm. away from a eliminationist, fundamentalist organization is not really tenable. The question really is, how do we go about that? And But I, I think if we do want to go all in with the Americans, the Americans are very much pushing for restraint at the moment. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder behind
0: closed doors what the conversations are.
1: I think the what I'm having a hard time with the conversation here is the the human element of it all. Because we just, you have all the evacuees from the North, right? Whose homes are still there. And will they be willing to go back? How long will the government fund them not living in their homes? I
2: mean,
0: would you go back? I wouldn't go anywhere near.
1: Exactly. With, with, with so how is of it kids? 10... Of, the
0: government can't ask them to go back.
1: It's right. Just, on the same time, the government's not going to pay for them to live wherever they're living forever. It in will a, have to. Right? Oh, we think, yeah, that's what you think will be the... Um, as long as it takes.
0: The, it's the responsibility. Well, uh,
2: only if... You're committing to
0: getting rid of the threat.
2: Yeah. If if you're not going to get rid of the threat, because then what? So what we're not going to You gonna can't li- go home till we can promise you. It's so, a,
0: we can honestly analyze your, your and you can't your go your home. Kids to, can play their safety. and you
2: can't go home to the south either until Correct. we've and then can you live? I mean, it's not such a large country. Like everywhere is a yeah. kind of a
0: border area. Yeah.
1: I was with friends yesterday from Kibbutz and I was asking uh, my friend, like, you know, when do you because they have homes to go back mm-hmm. to right even they're across street from Karaza but uh, right they prevented the terrorists from going in and they don't know but they have homes to go back to and the community you know will stay a community and I don't have an answer to it but it is in it seems like they're it, it's like B'ti Pool, right it's being dealt with so eventually if Hamas is eliminated or the threat is eliminated and certain people that have homes to go back to it seems like there's like a a realistic way that People on the Gaza border region that will be able to go back to their homes if they're psychologically right, right mm-hmm. there for it. But then the scenario, like kind of what we're talking about and waxing poetic about the north, you still have the same issue, but it's it wasn't dealt with yet. Hasn't and even so, started to be dealt right, with. So right. So kind of in Kalev's scenario, it's kind of leaving. It seems. To, I mean, I just think to to both scenarios here, it's you're leaving thousands of people in in limbo. Uh, to be living in, in temporary housing. So essentially, we have displaced tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of displaced people in Israel for many years to come. And that's really, you know, it's, it's really something to consider when we're having these geopolitical conversations. Right.
0: But we, we've become, I would say, lulled into thinking that it's normal to have a country with evil death cults across your border. And that that's something that can, you can maintain a life like that. All you have to do, I mean, listeners around the world, all you have to do is every time you build a building, make sure that every apartment has its own bomb shelter. We're recording this episode in a bomb shelter studio. That's just normal. It's right. just a normal way for your country to live. You know what? Why until October 6th, did the, go- the government convince that I fell for it? My God, like, oh, I guess that's just normal life in Israel. It is not normal life. There's something that has to be done. You cannot be 100 meters from a from an evil death cult that wants to die and kill and rape and, you know, shred bodies with their bare hands and kidnap and torture. Like, you just, it's, you can't. That's what I think, and I think Kalev and I both agree, we cannot go back to the October 6th paradigm.
1: Right, I guess, but then that goes to how long will your family members and friends not be home and then reserve duty to change the reality here, and how long can we, the Israeli home front, stomach the change reality that we're living here right now, You know, do we wanna go back to, okay, we'll we'll figure it out later, or do we just need to bang it out now, even though we know we need to figure it out, but it's not easy. Both scenarios here require a ton of sacrifice and stomaching things that we never wanted to stomach here. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to take a position on this, and I think we'll leave it at that. Food for thought here, and it's dynamic, and things will change, We'll see see what happens but this was really helpful mike and kalev
0: we're choosing from bad options but we'll we'll get to the other side
1: yeah that i agree stronger i mean we are optimists here in this little team they yeah, are I'm, two of I'm the not. best well you're british yeah, but yeah. um for a british person you're pretty optimistic <laughs> and uh thank you this has been a pleasure and thanks for thanks, having Reggie. me to uh to host thank you very much bye bye
2: You've been listening to The Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Massah fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel and all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. and The connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development, And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.